The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. It's great to be back. We hope you had a good break wherever you are in the world. This new season will take us up to the end of the year and, as ever, we'll be bringing you news, interviews and expert analysis from across the international art world. Later in this episode, I talk to Christian Markley as his video masterpiece The Clock, which has wowed audiences across the globe, returns to London for the first time since its premiere here at the White Cube Gallery in 2010. It's very much a portrait of all the video rental shops that um, have since disappeared in the last 10 years. Everybody downloads their films. And um, so it's very much about uh, what was available in London during those three years that I was making the clock. But first this week, Vincent van Gogh. Martin Bailey, a correspondent for the art newspaper, has written several books on the Dutch master, including The Sunflowers Are Mine, The Story of Van Gogh's Masterpiece, and Studio of the South, Van Gogh in Provence. His latest, Starry Night, focuses on the year that Van Gogh spent in the asylum at Saint-Paul-de-Mosol in Provence, from May 1889. It captures in greater detail than ever before what life was really like for Van Gogh in the asylum, soon after he'd mutilated his ear in the Yellow House at Arles. Martin is here now, and I'm pleased to say we're also joined by Martin Gayford, the writer and critic, biographer of Lucian Freud, David Hockney and Michelangelo, and the writer of the bestseller The Yellow House, Van Gogh, Gauguin and Nine Turbulent Weeks in Arles. I thought I might start the discussion with you, Martin Gayford, actually, because you wrote the book The Yellow House, which is actually about another seminal period in Van Gogh's life, the the period in Arles with Gauguin. Can you just tell us a bit of the background which ultimately leads to uh, Van Gogh entering this asylum? Yes, well, Van Gogh arrived in Arles... uh, early in 1888, having spent two years in Paris, which actually is the period we know least about because he didn't write very many letters then. And then uh, he, he spent the rest of the year uh, until early autumn more rather isolated and working in a sort of crescendo of uh, creativity, uh, which he described as maintaining a high yellow note. So more more and more masterpieces pieces pour out through the summer, uh, the sunflowers, the wheat fields and so forth. Uh, and he was getting into a more and more wobbly state, uh, one gathers from the, from the letters, and also uh, uh, waging this campaign to get Gauguin to join him um, Gauguin eventually arrives uh, towards the end of October. Then they have a very intense period of nine weeks uh, in which they're working side by side, cooperating, quarrelling, uh, learning from each other. That culminates uh, just before Christmas in the very celebrated uh, breakdown and uh, ear mutilation episode uh, Van Gogh cuts off we now know his entire ear one of them and uh, Gauguin just leaves uh, it, it, he's, he's walked out of the house before he comes back Van Gogh's covered in blood he 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 disappears he goes to Paris he never sees Vincent again Vincent uh, enters the hospital in, in Arles and he emerges early the next year Martin Bailey can you take up the story from there Yes, I mean, Van Gogh's physical wounds um, healed remarkably quickly in a sort of week or so, which is actually astonishing. But 
um, the underlying problems were still there and the mental difficulties which had emerged. So he was initially kept in hospital and um, he was allowed out during the day initially to go to the Yale House and paint, but he came back to the hospital in the evening to sleep. Um, but he became in increasingly aware that he would be unable to live independently. There were too many mental um, barriers in the way. And um, his doctors and his brother encouraged him to move to an asylum. Now, the two asylums they were initially looking at were those in Marseille and Aix-en-Provence, which were enormous public institutions, you know, with a thousand patients. And that would have been terrible for Vincent. Uh, fortunately, in the end, he went to a much smaller, much, much smaller private asylum, uh, just outside Saint-Rémy, which was 20 kilometres or so from Arles. And um, he went there at the beginning of May and he was to spend just over a year. It was one year and one week there. Is it fair to say that this smaller asylum was somewhat more enlightened than those grand institutions that you're talking about in Marseille, in Marseille and Aix? There was plenty of room, there was plenty of space, and that was very important for Vincent because they allocated him two rooms, one um, for sleeping and one for a studio, and that was fantastic. Um, in fact, I found documents which I published in Starry Light showing that uh, there were only 18 male patients. So it was a very small number. So they got much more personal care. And there was a garden. And that garden, uh, this lovely walled garden, was absolutely essential for Van Gogh because um, it gave him an opportunity to paint outside. And if he'd ended up in one of the large public asylums, he never would have produced what he did over that year. Well, exactly. And they were in the middle of cities, weren't they? And what was crucial to this period is that, as, you, as we see in the paintings, he's surrounded by extraordinary uh, countryside. Yes. I mean, Van Gogh really developed as a landscape artist when he was in Provence. And I mean, the country round the asylum is so beautiful. Um, olive groves, um, tall cypresses and um, the hills of Les Alpes in the background. I mean, we, it's, it now is a major tourist attraction, that area, because it is so beautiful and unspoilt. And that landscape um, it, it gave Van Gogh a great encouragement um, to exercise himself as an artist. And if he hadn't been painting, I don't think he would have survived. It was his reason for living. It gave him a vocation, um, and it was so important to him. Uh, tell me a bit about the asylum then. Um, you visited it and you gained access to it in a way that the public could never gain access to it today. Yes, I mean, 30 years ago, when I just began uh, being interested in Van Gogh, um, I was allowed inside the, um, it's now a mental hospital, um, and I was allowed inside and I took photographs uh, there with the um, director. Um, very soon afterwards, all visits from outsiders were banned, understandably. Um, so tourists now and visitors can visit uh, a small area, the church and the old cloisters, which are lovely and, and very ancient. And there's a room which is um, presented as Van Gogh's room. It's not actually the room where he slept. Um, well, that actually was one of many discoveries I made from reading your book, that I, I, I visited it and, and, and seen this uh, very convincing uh, uh, fake uh, <laughs> room of Van Gogh's uh, and, uh, and just accepted that that was where he'd, he slept. So um, I, I imagine most people think that. Who they go. do, yes. yeah. Now, in order to make this into a book, you've actually gathered some new research. Can you tell us what that is? 
Yes, I mean, so many people come to me and sort of say, there isn't any more to discover about Van Gogh. But of course, there is, there always is. And the most important bit of research I did was to find an unpublished register of admissions of the patients who'd come there. And this gave the names of the patients. And we now know um, almost all of the 18 patients who were there. And I was able to correlate um, the admission register uh, with a book and article by the asylum director uh, in the 1920s who talked about the medical problems of the patients when Van Gogh was there. And the bottom line is we now have a much better understanding of the environment in which uh, Van Gogh was. I mean, so far, um, art historians have relied very, very heavily on Van Gogh's letters, understandably, because they're so telling. But in the case of his period at the asylum, he writes very little about what everyday life is like. And I think it was partly because he didn't want uh, he wanted to escape from the asylum when he was writing. He didn't want to dwell on it. And he also wanted to spare his brother, Theo, uh, some of the uh, unpleasant details. So with this new information, we're able to understand much better what this situation was and how it was for him. So have you uh, followed up letters from other people that were in the asylum and that sort of thing what sort of materials have you gained um well looking mostly you know uh, at uh, birth and death records uh, uh, to see what profession the other patients were for example there was an elderly priest he probably had dementia he was sent there uh, um, and um, uh, in some cases people were mentioned in newspaper reports so it's a matter of um, of putting the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, but that's the nature of research. And so, some of the patients uh, were very severely disturbed, which Vincent sort of touches on in his letters. But uh, you, you've managed to fill out fill out that information. Yes. Obviously, it would have been quite. I mean, there were people who were shouting and screaming all the time. Yes, and I mean, violent, I was, and it's, yeah. it must have been quite a testing environment in order to, in which to produce landscapes and. Uh, Exactly, yes. I mean, I was actually shocked by how severely um, affected some of the other patients were. Um, The reports of them breaking furniture. There was one young man uh, um, who was described as violent, uh, but he couldn't speak. And if you can't speak, it's not surprising that you turn to violence to express yourself. Um, So it's actually quite moving. And uh, for most of the time, Van Gogh was... Uh, really among the sanest patients um, in the asylum. And it must have been very difficult for him being surrounded by these people. You know, every time he went to the the, uh, refectory to have his breakfast, you know, there would be people throwing around food, shouting um, in the common room when they were keeping warm um, around the fire. Other people would be doing similar things. So it was a very, very trying environment. And so it's astonishing he produced this work. Although... uh it, it also, it, it strikes me, it was good for him. When he arrives in Paris in uh, in uh, May 1890, his new uh, uh, sister-in-law says, uh, remarks on how healthy he looks. He looks he looks rather sort of, he's sort of bronzed and fit-looking and uh, looks fitter than his brother Theo. Uh, so I would imagine that a regular life, regular meals, uh, probably... Uh, 
little or no alcohol, which he was he was drinking heavily in in Arles at times and before, uh, was probably physically was make, was making him more robust. Well, perhaps I can put you correct on ah. the alcohol, uh, because in <laughs> fact one of the um, conditions that his brother Theo imposed on the uh, asylum when he was admitted was that Vincent should be given a half litre of wine every day. That's quite a bit. It's quite a bit. One imagines he might have been uh, knocking back more than that, uh, left his own own resources in all. Yes, I think your your basic point about the regular life and the sort of discipline and the regular meals is actually uh, quite important. And Vincent was not very good at organising his life. Um, He was very good at painting, but he wasn't really good at the everyday things of life. And I think being in an institution, although he hated the institutionalised life, I think you're quite right that it it probably made him healthier. And of course, there were doctors uh, keeping a little bit of of an eye on him. Should we talk briefly about what condition we think Van Gogh had? Because I know that both of you obviously will have looked into this in your respective books. Martin, you, I think, give a very good case for... Uh, the pattern of a bipo- what we would now call a bipolar disorder existence in the sense that there were flurries of activity and there were points which where clearly he sunk into quite quite deep depression is is is, is that what you would say he suffered from well there have been literally hundreds of papers by medical specialists um, analyzing what van gogh's problems were his own doctors in his own time thought it was epilepsy and uh, the most likely explanation is bipolar disorder, but it's by no means clear. And as a non-medical expert, I've always wondered whether he had two problems or even three problems, which makes it more difficult to diagnose. Uh, but what do you think, Martin? Well, I, well I, when I did my uh, uh, research, I put it to uh, the question to a consultant psychiatrist who uh, I happen to know, and said, so, so if you had a patient uh, presenting with these symptoms, what, what would you think? And she said, well, I would certainly think in terms of bipolar. So I would, I, I, as uh, Martin Bailey said, I think that's probably the strongest uh, diagnosis, but it's quite possible that he had uh, I agree. Several things. I think it's pretty likely that he had syphilis, but he hadn't. It, it hadn't reached the uh, the, the tertiary f- uh, uh, f- final stage yet. So that probably wasn't actually what was making him ill. But he, it was it was an underlying factor, and he, there may have been more going on as well. So let's let's talk about this extraordinary level of activity because these are very trying circumstances that he was working in, and yet one of the things that the book does really beautifully, I think, is show us page after page the masterpieces he was producing yes i mean he did some astonishing paintings and starry night of course gave the title um, and that's a painting that we all know so well and uh, he was only able to paint for sort of uh, three quarters of his time because the rest of the for a quarter of the time he was ill so when he was actually in reasonable health he was producing you know a painting uh, almost every day i mean that's an astonishing uh, uh, achievement uh, he spent uh, most of his waking hours painting. Uh, there wasn't really very much else uh, to do. But, I mean, it was one of the things that just is so amazing that he was able to produce these fabulous landscapes, you know, which are so optimistic, most of them, in the most trying of circumstances. Yes, and, and uh, as, as you uh, uh, 
underlined there were in, in the book there were actually there were more there were perhaps another 20 or so which uh, which were left in the asylum when he when he went back to, to Paris and most of which almost all of which have disappeared uh, the, the, pre- the productivity is quite astonishing and uh, another point which rather intrigues me is what he chose to depict around uh, around the asylum i mean when one goes there well it's it's uh, well you can't help noticing that uh, some of the most spectacular roman remains in in southern france are just outside the gate uh, i mean i presume he could have uh, got that far to to to, to, to paint those. no interest whatsoever in roman remains it's the same in Arles. the spectacular roman remains no interest at all. i think vincent didn't like the past and i even wonder if it he it he found it rather depressing or, or 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 alarming. He's he didn't like Gothic architecture, and that doesn't he mentions in one of his letters. And that doesn't feature as much as it might, considering. Yes, I think I think he was almost rebelling against the fact that other artists were painting the Roman ru- ruins because they were quite sellable. Um, so he actually wanted to do something different. So I think there was a sort of an element of rebellion in his decision to concentrate on the olive groves. Yes, or a corner of a field or a, or, or a tree. Or, yeah. It... One of the things that the, the book does really nicely is that you, so you see him sort of fanning out, as it were, and then coming back into the asylum. There were, for instance, the... Uh, paintings he makes in the garden and then you see the cypresses and you see sort of ravines but then also he made a series of remarkable self-portraits can you tell me a bit about the kinds of work he was producing Uh, well it was it was mainly landscapes i mean he would have liked to have done more portraits um, because the, the the only people we could uh, paint there were the staff and there weren't very many members or the other patients. And although he did um, paint two of the patients, I presume that he needed permission from the director of the asylum. And um, uh, the patients would not have been very pleased when they saw the result of the portraits that Van Gogh was producing because they were so unlike uh, portraits at the time. Um so he, he, because he couldn't do many portraits, he therefore concentrated more on the, the landscapes. And um, there is an astonishing range. And he did things in in series, in a way, not quite like Monet, who would sort of paint exactly the same scene under different lights. But he would paint wheat fields at different stages, slightly different views, different weathers. Uh, so he would investigate um, a theme. I'm not sure that he necessarily did it consciously, but he would. He would. You could see that he was selecting motifs that um, he particularly liked. And the wheat field, for example, was a view from his window, from his bedroom window, and the window um, had heavy metal bars over it. So he was actually looking through these metal bars at the landscape. Um, and again, when you realise how these paintings were created, um, it's such a wonderful achievement. It's uh, uh, an ironic sidelight, really, on uh, Van Gogh's uh, uh, work, is that he he remarks from time to time in the letters that what he really wants to do is portraits. So these landscapes and still lives and so forth, that they're done uh, for, for, for want of portrait sitters. Uh, and uh, that was a problem he had vir- virtually everywhere. In all, he couldn't. He had great difficulty in persuading people to to pose for him, and it and it, if anything, became even worse once he went into the asylum. Although I gather from your book, several uh, uh, 
uh, portraits he did do and gave to the sitters seem to have disappeared because they were probably destroyed. Now, this is an interesting point. I mean, I think he normally would give a copy of a paint of a portrait to the sitter as a way of saying thank you. And very, very few of them have survived. So one must assume that uh, many other sitters were given the portraits of themselves. And um, I think they probably disliked the portraits. And at some point, they were simply thrown away. But of course, it's possible that um, in some attic somewhere in Provence, um, one or two of these portraits could survive. Well, there are. Uh, there is a possibility that quite a few uh, lost Van Goghs may turn up. Was quite a few uh, went missing uh, during or after the Second World War, including one you reproduce in your Sunflowers book, I think it is, uh, uh, which was one of the uh, uh, pictures of uh, tr- ivy growing on a tree, which uh, Van Gogh painted which was obviously a painting he hugely admired, and it was last cited uh, uh, being examined by Hermann Goering in Paris during the war. Is that correct? That, that's correct, and Goering almost certainly took it. There's a photograph of him with his thumb actually sort of feeling the impasto yeah, on sort the of surface caressing of the, the painting. Z- the painter, yeah. <laughs> so we assume that he took this painting, which has now disappeared, um, but some things um, hopefully will still turn up. Martin Gayford, can you talk about the sort of innovations that Van Gogh was making in in terms of te- technically and in terms of space and his use of paint at the time? Well, uh, his his palette changes actually. The 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 the, uh, the Arl period uh, is characterised by this uh, high yellow tone, particularly during the the harvest period, the the summer, and it, it's uh, it's a little bit uh, uh, more restrained at Saint Remy. Uh, it's he's. It's certainly a distinct, uh, although his his career is amazingly short. I mean, his mature uh, period is perhaps just about three years. But even so, there are distinct, when he moves, there are distinct changes. And he was moving, it seems to me, not I think abstract isn't exactly the word, but towards the end of his life, he was moving into a sort of freer idiom. Uh, and when he's painting for example, ivy and tree trunks. It's getting quite sort of free and wild sometimes. I mean, I agree that the, the, the strong colours of the Isle period um, uh, are, are muted when he's in the asylum, and that possibly may reflect his mood. But the other thing he does introduce or strengthen is the brushwork. And um, although he used strong impasto, thick paint when he was in Isle, the brushwork is sort of more dramatic um, when he's at the asylum in San Remy, and I particularly point uh, to Starry Night with this sort of uh, cloud-like form which sort of rushes across the canvas. So that's what he developed at the asylum. One of the things that strikes me when I'm looking at the paintings in the book, again, is uh, his amazing spatial innovation. There's a picture um, of pine trees in the garden of the asylum, and Martin, you describe how it's as if he's lying on the ground looking up to the tree canopy, but also it has this sort of almost aerial perspective of the figures, one of whom may in fact be Van Gogh, as you point out. That's another really striking innovation, isn't it? His his use of space and the way he characterises space. Yes, and you can imagine, uh, you know, that uh, on a hot uh, summer's day in Provence, you might actually be lying on the ground, um, sort of looking up at the sky and dreaming or thinking about the painting that you were going to do next. Um, but you're quite right. In this painting you describe, 
the, the buildings of the asylum look absolutely tiny. Um, it almost looks like a sort of doll's house and these huge great trees sort of going up into the sky and then the sky uh, changing its colour with different shades uh, of blue. Uh, um, so, you know, that shows what, what was going on in his mind and the imagination that lies there. Yes, and I thought an interesting point actually uh, came out of your observations uh, of Starry Night and your your investigation of exactly what the what, what the um, uh, conditions of the night sky were on whenever it was the fifteenth of June uh, in in uh, uh, in southern France. But, but your your final conclusion is actually he's not depict, carefully depicting the. Uh, uh, the condition of the, the position of the stars and so forth. So it's much more a sort of generalized memory image. And uh, that's actually one of the um, uh, contrasts in, in Van Gogh's work, which uh, uh, it was a theme in his old period. He wanted Gauguin to help him paint more from imagination and memory. And he produces a few pictures at that stage of that kind, and actually a few more successful ones, it seems to me, when he's in the asylum. Let's let's talk about this then, because I think this is a remarkable piece of research. Can you describe, Martin, your visit to the planetarium and how you got them to recreate the sky that Van Gogh might have seen on that, on that evening? I, I was very curious to know whether... Van Gogh was actually depicting something that he'd seen in the painting of Starry Night. So I went uh, to Greenwich, um, to the planetarium there, to ask whether they might be able to reconstruct what the sky would have been like on that night in the summer of um, 1889 um, in Provence. And um, I think because everyone's so intrigued by Van Gogh, they agreed to help. Um, so I went into the planetarium by myself in this large room, and then they projected the night sky as it changed over that night. And one was able to see that Van Gogh had certainly not depicted stars uh, or the moon in the way in which they happened, but he'd taken various elements. So some elements could have been seen uh, the previous night, some the following morning. And he'd sort of, in his own mind, he'd brought together elements from the night sky to recreate this um, astonishing image. And it's quite easy to understand why he was interested in the sky. There wasn't very much to do in the evenings um, uh, at that time. Uh, There would have been virtually no artificial light, so you couldn't really have read. So you look out of the window at the sky, and um, he was therefore looking out of the barred windows um, probably every night, just sort of looking at them, at the stars. And the stars meant a great deal to him. He somehow sort of associated them with the idea of eternity. Um, so they actually had a, a sort of spiritual meaning for him as well. And then he sort of took these elements and created this really imaginative vision. Yes, it was a subject he'd been, he'd been toying with and attempting for some time, wasn't it, as you say? say yes, I mean, tell us about pe- the owl painting that he yes, did. Well, yes, he, he did another one, which... Uh, Apparently, he he did do outside, uh, although that's the claim. Which uh, I mean, it would pose terrible or tremendous technical difficulties. <laughs> but, 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 but painting outdoors after dark, <laughs> enormously <laughs> challenging activity. Um, I suppose one is. I was going to, uh, thinking about the Sarami. Uh, picture uh, you uh, one thing that struck me is you get very very little uh, uh uh light pollution in 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 the provencal countryside in the late 19th century so you'd get a tr- tr- tremendously vivid 
uh, impression of, of, of a clear sky. Indeed. I mean, there was virtually no artificial light, so it's difficult for, for us who live in cities to imagine what the sky must have looked like, sprinkled with all these stars everywhere. But there's also this sort of intriguing possibility that he might have depicted the Milky Way. Uh, yes, I mean the, the the this curious sort of wave-like form that, that sort of rushes across uh, the painting. Um, I think it could well be um, the idea of the Milky Way, which you really would have seen in those days, you know, as a sort of almost a white form. I mean, when we see it uh, when we see it uh, with artificial light, we just see some of the stars, but you know, you would have seen so many stars. So. I think seeing the Milky Way must have inspired uh, the idea of this formation across the painting. But of course, what Van Gogh has done is make it move and give make it lively. Now, let's talk about what happens after he leaves the asylum. First of all, why did he leave the asylum? And then what happens next? Because before too long, he dies. Yes, I mean, it's interesting he left the asylum almost exactly a year after he arrived. He got increasingly frustrated um, with life there. He probably ought to have stayed because he had uh, probably four separate mental attacks. But he put very strong pressure on the asylum director and his brother uh, to leave, and they did agree that he could leave. Um, So he left in May 1890 and uh, he had a short visit to Paris uh, to see his brother um, and uh, his brother's new wife and then he went to Auvers-sur-Oise which is um, a delightful village just north of Paris and he was there for two months he was very productive again he painted a painting a day plus drawings and things seemed to be going relatively well Um, and then suddenly um, tragedy struck we don't know what happened, but um, he walked up to the wheat fields where he was painting regularly with a gun that he'd borrowed probably from the inn where he was staying, and he shot himself in the stomach. And he then managed to walk back to the inn and he climbed up the staircase to his room and uh, the innkeeper saw something was wrong and followed him up and he was uh, very badly wounded and his brother came to sit by his bedside, and two days later, he was dead. Martin, did he produce much work after leaving the asylum? Well, yes. In fact, I was going to say to Martin Bailey that I very much hope he's going to complete his trilogy and write and write another book about the Auvers period, because although it's only two months, it's another discreet period in Van Gogh's work. And actually, you can see him moving in different directions. He changes, the work changes again. He goes for a horizontal format. I think, I mean, it's idle but uh, fascinating to speculate on what would have happened if he hadn't either committed suicide or committed this act of self-harm which which killed him off or whatever whatever happened if if uh, what van gogh would have done next is a, is a fascinating question well thank you both for talking so vividly about this amazing artist thank you thank you very much Starry Night, Van Gogh at the Asylum, is published by White Lion Publishing. The hardback is £25 and it's available now. You can also read Martin Bailey's weekly blog, Adventures with Van Gogh, at theartnewspaper.com. And Martin Bailey is also co-curating Tate Britain's exhibition Van Gogh and Britain, opening in March next year.
Martin Gafer's The Yellow House is still in print 12 years after it was first published, and his latest books are Modernist and Mavericks, Bacon, Freud, Hockney and the London Painters, published by Thames and Hudson, and Lucian Freud, a two-volume opus published by Fyden. I'll be back talking to Christian Markley after this. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration, a key event on Japan's path to modernism. Out went the militaristic Tokugawa shogunate, which had ruled the country since 1600. In came a semi-constitutional government under the Emperor Meiji in the new capital, Tokyo. To celebrate this anniversary, Jeff Olson, director of Japanese art at Bonhams, New York, offered 20 treasures of Japanese metalwork from a private collection. One of the highlights of the auction was an outstanding bronze incense burner with a classical-style winged pegasus, a motif not seen in traditional Japanese art. Now, earlier this week, Christian Markley's The Clock opened at Tate Modern. This 24-hour video installation is a moving image collage, plundering thousands of clips from a hundred years of film and television history that depict clocks or reference time. One of the first masterpieces of 21st century art, it was made in a three-year period between 2007 and 2010. It premiered at the White Cube Gallery in 2010 and has since been shown all over the world to enormous public and critical acclaim. The Tate acquired the work with the Centre Pompidou in Paris and the Israel Museum in Jerusalem in 2012 and this is the Tate's first showing of the work in a dedicated space in its new extension. I went to Tate Modern earlier this week to talk to Christian. Christian, the, the clock, as far as I know, was made in London. And yet this is the first time that it's been shown at Tate Modern, which is a sort of national institution of, of, of uh, modern art in London. Does it, does it feel like a homecoming for this work? Um, well, it's been eight years since it was shown in London, so I'm very excited to have it back here. Um, yeah, it was made in London. Um, it features Big Ben a lot. <laughs> um, and... Um, it's exciting, uh, especially in this new building, um, and especially the fact that it's free and people can come back to it uh, as as many times as they want to. If they're, if they're lucky enough that there, there isn't too much of a queue. The fact that it was made in London, I wondered if that affected the actual nature of the clips that were used in the sense that I know you had a sort of you and a team of people researching... Do you feel that some of the inevitable sort of biases of collections of videos in London affected the nature of the material in any way? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's very much, um, in a way, um, a, a portrait of all the video rental shops that um, have since disappeared in the last 10 years are, um, you know, gone. Everybody downloads their films and... Um, so uh, it's very much about uh, what was avail- available in London um, during those three years um, that I was making the clock. Yeah, very much so. And and like I said, Big Ben, a lot of uh, British movies were um, featured, and and uh, you know because they were available. And uh, of course, they if if the action happens in London, you're pretty sure there's going to be a Big Ben shot. Um, tell me about the process between conceiving of this idea and the actual making of it was that quite a speedy transition or did you have to mull over how you were going to do it for quite a while before you actually put it into action 
Um, well, I had one year that I, I was just um, basically messing around to see if it was possible. Uh, I didn't believe it was, uh, I didn't totally believe it'd be possible. Uh, and only uh, after a year of experimenting, of finding material and seeing how I could put it together to make an interesting um, uh, series of, of sequences and and to blend it all together. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of a gamble at first, um, and um, but it it worked out. After a year, I was convinced it, it could be done, and uh, if I was missing a minute, I could find a way to um, replace it with something else, or you know. Did you find yourself sort of carrying a notebook around with you all the time and noting down moments in films that you'd seen a clock or, or... No, no, I didn't watch any of the films. I, I just edited. I was busy enough doing that. And I had a bunch of assistants who um, were watching films all day and uh, bringing me uh, these, these uh, clips. And uh, no, I was, I was totally focused on the, the editing and finding ways to, to link all these fragments and to, to create this um, illusion of, of continuity. And um, yeah, that, that uh, was in a way that the more interesting part, I think, of kind of knitting all this fabric. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the most striking things about this film. It's not just a selection of random clips of certain times of day you've actually found ways to almost create mini narratives between the individual clips and in a way that's the most awe-inspiring part of it from my point of view yeah and but you know in when um because everything is sync um to the to the present um so at 10 a.m i i will of course see a lot of similar action taking place at 10 a.m and um, finding uh, the links between these these clips is is sometimes easier. I mean, if if it's noon and everybody's eating um, or starting to cook, you know, there's a lot of scenes happening in restaurants or kitchens, or so there there is a you know a, it's easier to link them. Um, and um, yeah, midnight. Uh, there's a lot of clips, of course. Uh, I mean, the, there's always a, a build-up, in a way, to the hour, because that's the material that I found. So I had more choices, you know, leading up to, to the hour, uh, being midday or midnight, um, or three in the afternoon, or three in the morning. Uh, that was a bit harder, though, three in the morning. Yeah. I suppose there's different sort of paces that occur during the films, aren't there? They sort of, you know, that you have long, sometimes longer sequences of clips at sort of mo- at lulls, but then these amazingly almost frenetic moments of activity. Yeah, I mean, it's very much based on the material that I found, and um, you know, sometimes uh, the hardest I think was just before five a.m. from like let's say three a.m. to five a.m. At five a.m. everything starts. You know, people wake up. Uh, they go to work, um, and um, but after three, uh, it, it gets a bit tougher. Uh, four to five is is difficult, um, but it's also just before you wake up is a time when you dream a lot, uh, and there's a lot of fabulous dream scenes in the history of film that I, I could use. Um, 
and those are maybe you know fillers um when i couldn't get the exact uh clock you know on the bedside the before the alarm clock went off um but there's a lot of anxiety a lot of people unable to sleep uh, tossing around um hearing sounds <laughs> you know uh so I, I i there was always a way to to fill that time um i always wonder about during the editing process what effect it had on your mind i mean were you having strange dreams at the time that you were doing the editing no it was more physical um you know being uh in the same position editing sitting down in front of the computer i had some problems with my hand after a certain point calluses um i had to start yoga to uh relieve the tension and um which was a good thing because i still do it <laughs> right so um yeah physically it was it was uh tough and now it's you know been 10 years since i started or 11 years since i started that project um i don't you know i i find sitting in front of a computer all day editing uh more and more difficult you know yeah um the origins of this work are m- manifold but there are sort of it seems to me sort of two landmark moments one is the uh, 1995 film Telephones and then Video Quartet which seemed like a big leap in the direction of the clock. Is that is that the sort of sequence that you identify or did you see it all as a sort of continuum from your very earliest experiments with collage and music? Yeah, I mean all these uh, these things influence uh, my way of working and definitely the um, DJing and sound editing um, I've always been, you know collaging fragments from from found sounds so that was um very much there and especially in the soundtrack which is so important and um you know it really came out of that experience and 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 uh that that knowledge that you can sort of force things together even if they don't quite fit and and try to make something interesting out of all these fragments um and yeah telephone was the my first kind of video uh collage and um video quartet was also quite uh, an important piece um and um yeah that led to the clock and <laughs> um, can you tell me about the importance of Marcel Duchamp in terms of your the aesthetic of your work right the way through into uh, in, in other words the found object and how that sort of is the sort of fundamental principle of your work to a certain degree. Yeah, Duchamp is an artist I admire a lot um and um he has opened a lot of doors in a way um allowing us to uh work with whatever is in front of us and and um um you know some some um yeah the the ready made is i always work with found objects with with what's there i'm not interested in creating something you know new that no one has ever seen and and uh in a material that uh, you know um i invented or something you know and um we're always working with what's around us even if you're a painter um as duchamp said you know the tube of paint is is you know already made um 
but also the the element of chance and um i also am a big admirer of of john cage and so i think these are two very important artists in a way that they've allowed um not just me but um many artists to to work uh, with whatever is surrounding us and um i like doing that because this is really uh what um people know and and my goal as an artist is to react to the the environment i live in and the environment that we all share and to react to that to sometimes be critical sometimes um show the beauty of it uh, it can be you know many different things but um i'm interested in in everyday life and yeah i'm always interested in the uh, outdated media in a way uh not not that i'm necessarily looking for the media that's going to go out of fashion it's just it just happens to be that by the time i i you know get to work with it it's on its way out <laughs> becoming obsolete so well um, that's one of the interesting aspects of memory and time i think in the piece there's all sorts of layers of time in the piece yes it's a, it's called the clock and it's about it is a clock but there's all, but there's all sorts of you know cultural time and other other forms of memory and time that, that that haunt this piece. Did did lots of that become apparent to you as you were working on it, or did the sort of the fully fledged concept of the work form quite form in your mind? You know, as you began to to make the work. Well, I, I you know exploited that the that these jumps in time in in the video telephones. Um, and then, yeah, the, the fact that you're constantly jumping in, in time, really, uh, in, in cinema history, you know, from old silent, um, black and white films to, you know, uh, contemporary blockbusters and surround sounds, um, everything has been narrowed to uh, a quality stereo sound. Uh, the different types of film that was, uh, the different technology that was used over the years, you know, is part of the narrative. You know, you're, you're going from a, an optical sound to, to a digital sound, uh, from color to black and white. Uh, also, uh, another layer, uh, is, is the actors that we're all so familiar with and how, uh, they, they age, uh, not in a, chronological way but you see the same actors at different times of their career um that's another layer of of, of time um but more importantly it is about your time as a viewer and and you're the one that um um interprets uh the what what you're seeing and hearing and you because it's in sync with your life you have a very different uh, relationship to it. Um, you're not um, transported into a different time. You're living uh, in the present, and this clock is telling you what time it is now. Uh, and you have to make choices, decide if you want to leave because you have another appointment, or um, if you're tired, or if you have to go to the bathroom, or if you're hungry, or you need your cigarette fix, or whatever it is. Um, so you're struggling with, with, you have to decide how long you want to spend there. You have to, you know, so it's very much about you, the viewer, 
that is um, projecting, you know, identifying with with what's going on uh, on the screen. Christian, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks. Christian Markley's The Clock is at Tate Modern until the 20th of January. All-night screenings allowing you the rare opportunity to see those early hours sequences Christian described are on the 6th of October, the 3rd of November and the 1st of December. And that's all for this week. Do subscribe wherever you normally listen to your podcasts and make sure you follow us on our new Twitter account, at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. You can tell us what you think there or on Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to the two Martins and to Christian Markley and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>